Philippians chapter 3. First of all, I want to say thanks to, to all of you who participated in the Operation Christmas Child. Um, the last report that I got is that we actually had 263 boxes that were given, and we're still expecting more in today, and I saw some in the office this past week, so thank you so much for those who participated in that. Um, it's always a fun event uh, for us around the house uh, this past week, seeing, or actually the week before, seeing stuff scattered all all over the uh, the floor, and my kids uh, packing up their boxes and, and really enjoying in that, and this year, Samuel was really wanting to put this little Nerf ball into his box. But as we were trying to pack it, it wasn't fitting. And because he, he also wanted this big plastic cup that wanted to go in there as well. It just wouldn't work. So dad being the, the master packer of the family, okay, that's my job. That's one of the things I do. We took the Nerf ball and I said, I'm going to put it in the plastic cup. So I just like stuffed it in there. Samuel kind of looked at it and kind of moved his head around and he said, dad, the little boy's not going to be able to get it out of there. I looked at Samuel, and I said, no. And then I started pulling on it and pulling on it, and I was like, you're right, Samuel, he's not. So we eventually got it out, and we wrapped up the box and everything, and with rubber bands or something around it to hold it all to- together. But uh, as I talked with, with Debbie Quirles, who I'm thankful, she leads the charge for Operation Christmas Child here for us. Um, as I talked to her in the foyer, she, she told me of an interesting story that she had, that she experienced when she went to the global conference for Operation Christmas Child in Orlando, Florida. It was a time when representatives from over a hundred different nations around the world gathered to meet together with a thousand volunteers from the U.S. And, and the purpose of this event was to celebrate the uh, the spreading of the gospel through this ministry over the last 20 years. Most of these international guests, though, um, came from countries where life is not easy, where, where many lack uh, just abundance of necessities that you and I are, are accustomed to. They, they lived in places where Disease is not easily cared for, where ethnic and religious hatred and violence are, are present. Their churches do not have, uh, like ours, a plethora of Bibles. They don't necessarily have buildings. Uh, they don't have PowerPoints and all those kind of things and speaker systems and, and coffee bars out of them that we all think that makes church so cool. But as she, as one of the things that they wanted to kind of give to them was, as they're here and they're there for three days, they said, one of the things we want you to do is, if you would like, we'd like you to go and we'd like you to uh, go to Walt Disney World. It was only a mile away from where they met. And as I talked to Debbie and she shared with me, she, she actually said that uh, it was interesting that as she talked to those around them, most of them were not interested in going to uh, Walt Disney World. Matter of fact, as she talked to one man from Sudan, uh, as she, she talked to him about it, he, he said this to her. He told her he would much rather spend the remainder of his time in more prayer, praise, and song with those from the conference or be taken to a local church than go to a theme park. Now, I, I don't think this gentleman was anti-Disney World. I'm not either. But as I listen to that story, it, it kind of put the passage of Scripture today that we're going to go through in perspective, and it, 
it said something to me about this man, this gentleman, this believer from Sudan. It said something to me about his heart. And that what was on his heart and that what was most affectionate in his heart was God and the people of God and the kingdom of God and not the magic kingdom. That is, what what he treasured in his heart, what he longed for, what he desired to know was the King of kings and the the Lord of lords. That is, he he knew something of uh, a more magical power than Disney, but uh, he knew something of the power of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in his life, and that's what he longed for, and that's what he hungered for. And what that story caused me to do was to stop for a moment and not worry about going to Disney World if that ever happens someday. But to stop and ask myself, what do I hunger for the most? To hunger for God and Christ and His kingdom? Or do I hunger more for things like the magic kingdom? And I think that's a question all of us need to ask. I want us to ask to ourselves today. Last week, Jeb started a series that spoke of uh, hearts that hunger for the living God. And he, he, his summation of his sermon was basically that hearts that hunger for the living God are hearts that hurt for those who are hurting. And I want to suggest today that the passage that we'll learn, or we'll learn about today, is actually this will help us. That is, the thing that will fuel us and that will move us to, to have hearts that hunger for those who are hurting will be, first and foremost, hearts that are consumed with a passion for knowing Christ. First and foremost. Remember, this, pack, this passage that we'll look at here in Philippians chapter 3, 7-21 through 21, it will nurture a heart that hungers for the living God. It will, it will paint a, a picture of what passion for Christ really looks like, and it will give us some truths to help develop that passion in our hearts and our lives. So look with me together to Philippians chapter 3. And as we come to Philippians chapter 3, what we have to understand is that Paul is coming to this passage, and he's writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is taking sort of a... This is 20 or so more years after he came to know Christ on the Damascus Road, and he's taking sort of a a spiritual accounting of sorts. It's as if he's got this, this ledger out, and on one column he's written out and he says loss, and then in the other column he's written out gain. And he does sort of a accounting of the last 20 or 30 some years of, of his life, and now knowing Christ. And he starts here in verse 7, and he says this, But whatever things were gained to me, and what he's referring is, he's referring to back to those things that were in verses 5 through 6. He's looking back to there, where in verses 5 or 6, he, he gave his amazing Jewish pedigree. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had great standing as far as, as being a Jew. He, he, gave, he gives a recount of his supposed blamelessness in light of the law and his zealousness for the law. Things that he thought actually gained a merit with God. But now he says, but whatever things were gained for me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That is, it doesn't merit favor with God because it was self-righteousness, he's thinking. 
is self-righteousness is not the perfect righteousness of Christ, so it's, it's loss. It's not gain. But then he doesn't settle there because look what he He takes it up a notch there in verse 8 because look at this. He says, more than that, I count all things, not just my superior standing as a religious Jew in the past, but any honor, any credential, or any past work or present or future, I count all those things to be lost. It all goes into the lost column in view of knowing Christ. Look what he says there. To be lost in view of the surpassing value, the incomparable worth. That is, there is nothing of greater value to Paul than the knowing Christ. Look what he says. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing here speaks not of just a mere intellectual knowledge, but but personal. It's the gnosis knowledge. It's the personal. It's the experiential knowledge of actually knowing him not just in his head, but in his heart and, and seeing that lived out in his life because the, the Lord is working and transforming in his life. And notice what he says here. It's, it's my Lord. Notice the personalization of that. It's not just that he's Savior, but he's my Lord. And he's precious to me. He's mine. I don't know about you, but I, I need to stop and, and ask the question, is Jesus that precious to me? Do, do I cherish him as my Lord? I suggest you need to stop and you need to ask your question. Is knowing him that precious to me? Because look what he says here. He says, for I have suffered the loss of all things. This could be prestige. It could be his position. It could be power. It could be popularity that he had because of his standing. It could be possessions. Because you've got to realize that is he's writing this. He's actually, he's actually writing it from jail. I don't know about you, but the thought might have been running, running through my mind that, hey, before this whole Christ thing, I wasn't sitting in jail. I was putting people in jail. But as he got out his spiritual leisure and as he looked and as he looked in the lost column, even though he was sitting in jail, he said all these things, all these things I had before, that's loss. But even here sitting here in jail, it's gain because I know Christ. And then look what he says here. This, this would have been shocking to the readers when they read this because he says, and, and, I, I, and for I have suffered the loss of all things. And here's what he says about those things. He says, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, we've sanitized this word rubbish, okay? We've sanitized this word rubbish a little bit. Uh, it's a much cruder term in the first century Greek. It was a, it was a Greek term called scubula. It, it, it has the idea of waste, of refuse, excrement, or as the King James Version translated it, dung. He said this in order to grab their attention. He said, to, he said this to so that they would realize as he set up this, this, this leisure here, that of all these things that the world and that the world that he came from, as they, they, they measured these things as, as gain, he found put at the top of that thing, loss. As a matter of fact, as he looked at all these things in this column, he could write over it the word scubula. It was dung in comparison to the surpassing value and the worth of knowing Christ.
you value knowing Christ that way? What was it that moved him? What was the first thing that he treasured about knowing Christ? Look what he says there in verse 8 and in the 9. He says, and so that I may gain Christ. And here's what he says. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So it's as if Paul, is, as he's writing here, he kind of takes a look back or actually he takes a look forward where he's looking at this day that someday he's going to be for God. And God is in essence going to look at him. And the reason that he can be there in the manifest presence of God is because he has been found in him that is in Christ. And he treasures that knowledge. That because I know Christ and because I'm found in him, I stand in Christ righteous standing. It makes me acceptable to God. Because he's found in him. His, his identity is in him. Oftentimes, I, I ask many people this hypothetical question. I asked, I said, well, if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would be your response? And their response is very much the same as similar to what Paul would give in verses 5 and 6. It's a, a self-righteous response. It's a response, well, um, I was born a Christian. I was in a Christian family. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Or it's, I do good things. I do a lot more good than I do bad. And I exhort you to ask that question of yourself. If you were to die today and God were to ask you hypothetically, why should I let you into heaven? If it's your response is any of those things, if it's different than the answer that Paul gives, it's the wrong answer. It's, it's an answer that will send you to hell. Because the, the answer that we should give, if we should be asked, why should we be let into heaven, is this, and it's simply this, is what Paul said, because I'm found in him. I'm found in Christ. That's the only reason you let me in is because I'm in Christ. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that allows me interest and acceptability before you, God. Paul treasured knowing this. There's really two things that are being taught here. It's talking about this unity and this identity in Christ. And it's also this idea of what we call imputed righteousness. That is, the imputed righteousness is the idea that all my sins were, were placed on, on Christ. And that when he was on that cross, he died for my sins. And that when I put my faith and trust in Christ, it's as if all Christ, it's as Christ's righteousness is, is, is placed on me. And therefore, I'm accepted by God because my unrighteousness was paid for by Christ. Or how I like to often illustrate it, and I've used this illustration many a times, and I can't really think of a better one, so I'm going to use it again. It's this. When I was a, uh, a young man in college, I went away to college, and my dad, uh, he pulled out this credit card. And on this credit card, it said Matthew A. Reynolds. And he gave a, a very good warning. He says, look, Matt, don't go use this on every, anything. But if you need it, here it is. 
And so I took that car, and by faith, I took it, and I trusted my dad. I knew who my dad, knew my dad's character. And I used that, got right out that card, and, and I would swipe it for things that I had needs. And guess what? Not once did it ever decline me. Not once. It paid it every time. But here's the deal. That bill never made it back to my, my dorm mailbox. That bill always went to 2162 Cathedral, Norwood, Ohio, 45212, to Gerald A. Reynolds. He paid the bill, but I got the credits. I got the righteousness. And that's what Paul is treasuring here is the knowledge, first and foremost, that I'm found in him and I'm found to be righteous because of Christ. And he treasured that. That was surpassing value to him in worth. And folks, we ought to treasure that. If you, first of all, if you don't know Christ, Today must be your day, it should be your day, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. If you do know Christ, take communion later today, it ought to be an opportunity that you can pour out your love and your thanks for the surpassing value there is in knowing Christ, Savior and Lord. Amen? You got to get a little excited about that, folks. It's good stuff. Look at this, though. And stop there. This is only a launching pad for, for Paul. Look what he says here in verse 10. That I may know him. Look at this. So he doesn't stop. It's just, I want to know this, that I'm found in him. That is awesome. But then he goes this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a lot. We're going to run through it quick. But first of all, again, remember this word for knowledge here. It's the same word as in, same root word as in verse 8 of knowing. It's not just intellectual fact here that we're talking about. There's another Greek word they could have used for that. But this is gnosis knowledge. This is, this is a knowledge that, yes, I want to know intellectual truths about him, but I want to experience the reality of this truth and the reality of the person of Christ in my life as well, in my heart and in my actions. It's, it's that kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. And he says, first of all, that I want to know the power of his resurrection. Now, the emphasis here is on the word power. I want to know the power of his inter- resurrection. That is, what Paul wants to experience here is he wants to experience the same power that was exerted to raise Christ from the dead He wants to experience that same power in his life. And he has already. In essence, Paul was once spiritually dead. And it was because of the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit working in him, that he was regenerated, that he was taken from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he wants to continue to experience that resurrection power to enable him to actually live the Christian life as well. That's how he wants to know him. He wants to know him by a changed life. Second here, though, look what he also says, that I may know the power of, uh, of or the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, who wants that kind of fellowship? Fellowship of his sufferings? Now, I'm all cool with the fellowship of coffee and donuts. That's good fellowship. But he's going for something deeper here. The fellowship of his sufferings. What's he talking about? I think the idea here is that Paul knew very well that living for Christ meant suffering. 
Christ had told him that, that he would face persecution and suffering. The reality is, if you want to live out the power of the resurrection and Christ in your life, if you want to live for Christ, at some point, someplace, somewhere, you're going to face suffering. If you're going to stand up for the name of Christ, it's going to come. Now, it varies in degrees across the world, but it will come. And in Paul's mind, that he was so wanting to know him that if that meant suffering for Christ, he says, I'm in. I want to know it. I want to live in such a way that I will suffer, that people will make fun of me. Because I want to know Christ in that way. I treasure him so much. And here's the reality. If I've learned anything over the minimal suffering that I've experienced in my life and, and more just personal suffering and struggles and, and spiritual struggles along the way, is that God uses suffering. If we will turn into that suffering with faith, he actually uses that to know him more intimately. Because the reality is when I suffer and when I struggle, it causes me to cry out to Christ and depend upon him more and allow him to be weak or allow him to be strong when I am weak. That's what suffering can do. And Paul wanted to experience that. And look at this, when, when he says this, in being the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I don't think Paul is looking for ways to die here. I think the essence of what he's saying is it's similar to, first of all, what it says in Philippians 2, where Christ was obedient to the point of death. I think what Paul is talking about here is, first, he's, he's wanting to live out such obedience as Christ did. But I think he's also talking about something even more here. This phrase is a compound word uh, coined by Paul. You don't, you don't see anywhere else. This being conformed to his death, it's what we call a present passive participle. And let me explain it. It's like this. So it's the sense that Paul is being conformed to Christ's death by a transforming activity of God, and it's an ongoing process. That is, passive refers to something outside of you that's working on you, and it's present. That means it's ongoing. So Paul saw that I am being conformed to his death. That is, God is working on me to be more like Christ. And what did Christ do? Well, Christ did this. Christ died for our sins that in order that you and I might die to sin. Did you know that? Paul, Paul reflects this in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. He says this, For the death that he, Christ, died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then verse 11 says this, talking to us, the believer. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In essence, what he's saying is Christ died for your sins, and because of that, he broke the power and hold of sin over you. And now that we should walk and know, because Christ lives in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we don't have to walk around and fall into sin. In essence, he's saying you need to consider yourselves, you need to reckon yourselves dead. So when sin and temptation comes at me, I should be saying, I'm dead to that. I don't have to do that because of what Christ did in me. That's the essence, I think, what Paul is getting at, is being conformed to his death. That I'm living in such a way that I die to those sins that so once plagued me. That's the knowledge that he's talking about here. And then he says this, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, most scholars think that Paul is not doubting uh, he'll be resurrected, but he's kind of doubting the, the timing of when he'll be resurrected. I tend to lean, I'm not dogmatic about this, but I tend to lean toward the idea that Paul wants to so know and be like Christ and live for Christ 
That is, in essence, that he's thinking that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead now. That I might, might just begin to some way stand out as that glorified body that I'll receive someday now as I pursue Christ. I, I think that's the idea that he's capturing here. That he wants to live in such a way that he stands out and reflects Christ-likeness in such a great way. He wants to be clothed with Christ. I remember as a little boy, oh, I had to be back around probably Samuel's age, six, seven. And my dad was a policeman. I used to think that was the coolest thing. I mean, I thought, man, my dad carries handcuffs and a gun, all right? What does your dad do, all right? And so I thought he was cool as could be, and I wanted to be like him. I love my dad. And I remember my dad used to work uh, overtime, and he used to go to this plant and uh, he used to go and, and direct traffic at this plant. And I used to go with him and sit in the car and watch. And uh, then I started to get out of the car and actually uh, go and stand on all these steps. And, well, I wanted to be so like him. I had actually been given this uh, policeman's hat. And you can see where this is going now. All right. And I, so I, one time I put on this policeman's hat. And Dad's uniform was black pants. So I wore black pants. All right. My black shoes on. And I got my white Oxford on to look like Dad. Okay. I didn't have the badge and all that, but I had some other get-up and stuff that I took with me. And I went, I went out on that street because I, I wanted to be like Dad. I didn't care what other people thought, all right? I'd stand by that step, and I'd walk down it, and I'd, I'd direct some traffic too, all right? Dad, I couldn't go out in the street, but I'd direct it from the sidewalk. People would be driving by like, who is that little policeman, all right? <laughs> but I love my dad, and I cherish my dad, and I wanted to be so like him. I think that's what Paul's getting at. I so love my Lord and my Savior, and I want to be like Him. See, when we're talking about knowing Christ, we're talking about transformation. We're not talking about just outer experiences. We're talking about transformed lives. That's what knowing Christ is. I ran along this, this article some time back, and it was convicting to me now, or then, and it is now, and it was titled, $3 Worth of God. It said this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a, a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want that much of God. I don't want enough to make him make me love a homeless man or pick beats with a migrant worker. I, I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a, a new birth. I want a pound of eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. No, 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 not, not the flesh and blood one. He will, he will keep me from my appointment with my hairdresser and make me late for a cocktail party. He will soil my linen and break me strand, my strand of matched pearls. I can't put up with pundits from Persia or sweaty shepherds trampling over my nylon carpet with their muddy feet. My name isn't Mary. I want no living, breathing Christ, but one I can, I can keep in the crib with a rubber band. The plastic one will do just fine. That's often what we settle for. And see, knowing Christ is not knowing that kind of God and that kind of Christ. It's the kind of Christ who comes in and radically changes our lives, and we want it and we long for it. That's what it is to know Christ. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we live such a life where Christ is living his life through us? What does that begin to look like? Well, it starts... Well, I think Paul gives us some ideas here in verse 12 with this pursuit of Christ's likeness. 
It's not something you can just sit back, let go, and it just happen. Paul talks about pursuit. And the first thing is he says, pursue Christ-likeness. I believe what I call a holy dissatisfaction. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, not that I have already obtained it. He's not speaking of salvation. He is speaking of his longing to know, again, and experience more Christ more fully. Or have already become perfect. He's not speaking of sinless perfection. He's speaking of maturity. And then he says this, but I press on. It's a hunting term. So that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. And what was Christ's goal when he reached down and he laid hold of Paul on the road to Damascus? It wasn't just so he get saved and go do whatever he wants. It was to save him, yes, but it was to change him. It was to lay hold of him that he would come to, to know Christ, that he would come to, to, to grow in Christ, that he would come to, to serve Christ and reflect Christ more and more. And Paul realizes that. And so, so Paul is stirred by this. And Paul is stirred with what I call a holy dissatisfaction. It's not a woe is me kind of dissatisfaction. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not having arrived yet. I'm not perfect. It's not a, it's not a guilty dissatisfaction. It's, it's, it's what I, I would say a, a grace-filled, humble dissatisfaction. What Kent Hughes says opens the blessing of God. That, that brings on a life that knows more and more of Christ and then desperately wants to know more and indeed does know more and more and more. Because the reality is as we come to know Christ, we realize that He transcends us and He's beyond and He's more than we can ever think or imagine. And that's good. That's someone we want to long for. That's someone we want to worship and that's someone we want to pursue. Holy dissatisfaction. Second, it's a focused direction. Look at this, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I love this. I need this. It hadn't arrived yet. But one thing I do, notice, forgetting what lies behind. This is not a failure to remember. It's, it's, it's the idea of not focusing on the past, not being overwhelmed by it. But in reaching forward to what lies ahead, it's, it's, this is an athletic running idea here. I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Christ's likeness for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, it's, it's a focused direction. And here's the deal. If there's anything that gets us sidetracked in our walk with Christ, it's getting stuck in the past. It's getting stuck in the past either with our, our spiritual failures and not going forward in God's grace. And God's grace is the permission to get up. Or it's getting stuck even in our spiritual successes and then moving forward with spiritual apathy. I love the story of uh, the greatest mile run that match that ever took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile. It happened in 1954 in Vancouver, Canada. And the British Roger Bannister was facing off against the Australian John Land Landy. And these guys were the only two guys who had run under a four-minute mile. And they were in peak form, peak condition. And Bannister had put together this strategy that what he was going to do was that when it came to the third lap, he was going to kind of hold back a little bit and kind of rest and, and, and gather, gather some strength. Well, as he, he did that, as they entered the third lap, the Australian Landy, he poured it on. And began to put a huge distance of, of, ahead of Bannister. And so Bannister immediately changed his strategy. 
And he began pushing and stretching and moving forward. And as he did, as he got to that bell lap, he had caught up to him, and they were going shoulder to shoulder. And as they went, and they kept going, and they kept going, and they kept getting to the end in this bell lap. And he was waiting, and Bannister was in, and inside. He knew, like, look, if Lanny doesn't slow down, I'm going to have to give. And then it happened. Then it happened. Landy made a crucial mistake. As he was running around that last lap, the crowd was roaring. And, and, and as he was running, he couldn't hear the footfall of Bannister. And so instead of focusing forward, his concentration broke. And he looked back. And as he looked back, that was the moment that Bannister poured it on. And he went forward and won the race. Paul would have spotted that mistake right out of the crowd. And he's spotting that mistake for us. He's telling us, hey, you run by keep looking forward, not focusing on what's behind. You run forward. Keep looking ahead. Go forward in his grace or go forward pursuing more and more of his Christ-likeness. That's what he's saying here. Then he says this. I think he calls for a dependent discipline. Verse 15 says this. He says, let us, Paul includes himself, therefore as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living. He's talking about discipline here. Hey, keep at it. Keep having this attitude. That same standard to which we have attained. He says, don't fall back. Stay disciplined. Keep going. Keep having the same attitude. Keep pursuing Christ. Calls for discipline. Some of you might have seen the, uh, Eric Little of Chariots of Fire fame and of later missionary faithfulness. Eric, Eric Little was running for Team Scotland in 1923, and the team was neck and neck with Team France. They're having this, this dual meet here. And as he, he was running in the 400, as they took off and as they rounded the first turn, what they did is the, they were so bunched up, they were so shoulder to shoulder, that Eric Little got pushed and shoved and fell to the ground. But he didn't stay there. Instead of stopping or or getting upset, or whatever. He stayed disciplined. He got up. He got back into form. He started focusing ahead, shoulders up, head back, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he won. It's that kind of discipline. But it's not discipline in our own strength either. If you look here in the text, you notice what it says. If we have a different attitude, he says, God will reveal it to you. That is, God will work in your life to show when your attitude or your focus gets off course. He'll speak to you through other people or through his word, but he'll reveal it to you. I went to another track meet. This was a much different track meet. It was an elementary junior high track meet last spring. And uh, before the first turn, I, I saw a young lady also get pushed and fall to the ground. And I happened to be sitting by her father, and I kind of was listening to her father, and actually I was kind of looking to see how he would respond. And what I, I saw from him and kind of heard from him was, this, I just heard this, get up, get up, get up. And she did. She got up and she finished the race. She didn't win, but she finished. She got back and focused. 
And see, God does that to us too. When we fall and we stumble, he's there for us. And he says, get up. And not only that, but he also runs the race with us. There's another story you might remember in the 1992 Olympics. There was a runner, a British runner named Derek Redmond. He was running well in the semifinals of the 400. And as he's running this, uh, he, he, he was in the semifinals and he, he was looking well. But as he got around the track, and he had 250 meters to go. He popped a hamstring and fell to the ground. Stretchers started to make their way. But he got up. He was disciplined. He wanted to finish, even with a torn hamstring. But then out of his crowd, his father, Jim Redmond, pushes his way through the people, goes out there, comes along beside his son, and before it's over, they finish the race together as his son has his arm around his father. And that's the kind of father, that's the kind of God that you and I have. That we have a God who empowers us and runs the race with us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about working out your salvation. We have a part. We're to run. We're to go. But then he says this in Philippians 2 as well. He says that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're not alone in this is what I'm saying. We're disciplined. We exert ourselves, but we depend upon God and his Holy Spirit as well. And then last, look at this in verse 17. He says this, brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the power or to the pattern you have in us. And what I, I want to suggest to you is that it must be, we need a discipleship partner to pursue Christ as well. We need others to pursue Christ as well. When I was in college, uh, the dorm I stayed in for three years, I shared the same floor with a bunch of cross-country guys. And those guys are crazy cats, all right? They're just different, all right? They're a little on the weird side, okay? Sorry, Jerry. Uh, they are. I mean, these guys would be out running every day. It didn't matter if it was raining. It didn't matter if it was sleeting. It didn't matter what was coming down. And, I, and this was in Ohio, okay? It wasn't this week's stuff out here, okay? This was Ohio. It was cold, all right? And then they would be running out there in their little short shorts, okay? The little, little short shorts they have and that Grant has as well. But because uh, he's a runner. Jerry, you probably got a few yourself, all right? I, I don't understand that, but they did it. They were weird, okay? And I was like, how do they do this? How, how do they keep going, going like this, all right? And then I stopped them back, and I said, well, you know about every time I see these guys, they're with somebody else on the team. They're together. You see, God has given us partners. He's given folks that have been running the race a lot longer than you have, and you need to be running with them. You need to be partnering up with them. And see, it's that is how we're to pursue Christ's likeness together. Then last, uh, I just want to finish up with this. Because Paul here, he's got a hunger for the living God. He treasures to know him, and he wants a, a deepening knowledge of him in, in this pursuit of Christ. But what fuels this as well? Look what it says there in verse 20. It's a longing for Christ's return. Look what he says here. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we, we also we eagerly await. Look at this. It's, it, this eagerly wait, as one conversator said, it's like a, it's like a tiptoe anticipation. It's kind of like he's, he's on his tiptoes and he's, he's waiting, like, oh, I can't wait. And what is he waiting for? For a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And get this, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is, he presses on, but as he presses on in this relationship, he's also got an eye that's pointed ahead and he's eagerly waiting. He's saying, you know what? I'm pursuing this Christ-likeness, but I'm looking for that day. I'm looking for that day and I'm hungering for that day when my Savior, my Lord, will come back. And he will change this. He will transform this body. And I will experience full Christ-likeness then. Paul longs for that. He looks toward that. Folks, my exhortation is you, and my prayer is, is that you will have a hunger and desire for this knowledge of God. The knowledge of not just in the head, but a knowledge that brings transformation in your heart, in your hands, your life. And how does this start? How, do, how does this, this knowledge look? It starts in a pursuit for Christ, but if that's a struggle where it starts with, it starts by you humbling yourself. It starts you by humbling yourself and then asking God, give me this hunger for knowledge of you. Work this in me. That I might long for you. That I might long to know the power of your resurrection in my life. To that I will be willing to suffer, to share in your sufferings. That, Lord, I'll be conformed to your death, that I might begin to reflect that glorified body even now. But, Lord, as I wait, let me always keep an eye to continue to long on tiptoes for when you will return. That's how we do it. May that be your hunger.